Hello and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Monica Marvelous. Hey, Monica, how's it going? It's midterms already, Mav, which... How is that possible? I know. <laughs> like, like, I know that we like joke literally... about time tra- podcast time travel all the time, but I feel like I am constantly in the middle of time travel the next more stressful yeah. day. Yeah. Well, because you're always like, oh, I'm, I'm still trying to finish finals. I'm trying to finish finals. I'm grading finals. I'm grading finals. And like, that was, I swear you were doing finals last week. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, me I know too. It was, it was a couple weeks ago, yeah, but it's just like, oh my God. It's just like, and you're also, okay, to be fair, you're on quarters, right? We are on quarters, which means that everything is 10 weeks, which really does accelerate because it's not really 10 weeks yeah. of coursework. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, eight weeks of coursework and two weeks of finals, right? So it's right. every two months we're doing something different. <laughs> yeah. And then so midterms are are on the opposite month, I, I guess. So yeah. it, it does seem, because I'm on a semester system and, and I was when I was in school and I am now as a teacher. So quarters sounds exhausting and, and yeah. tired. I, I, I don't know how, to pe- how people do it. I mean, it's, to be honest, we were yeah. joking earlier but, this week about how our undergrads are also kind of minoring in like alcohol and drugs and sex, which like you should to like become an adult. <laughs> but there is also something about like, I don't think the kids on the quarter system get to have that like extra supplementary minor because I don't know where the time is for that. Like you're taking more classes than I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, fair. Maybe during the summer. I don't know. Well, but there's summer courses too. I don't know. Oh, I hope they get some break somewhere. Oh, okay. I hope they well, get that's... drugs and sex somewhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Growing up in Michigan, you know, you're so close to the Canadian border that you and the drinking age is 19 in Canada. So it was, mm. I never did it, but it was considered a very normal rite of passage on your 19th birthday to go I to the... I'm a good boy. I have no idea what either of these crazy people are talking about. You have two crazy women here who are breaking all kinds of laws, but I am a good, you know, conservative, Christian, wonderful upbringing boy. The other voice here is my wife, Stephanie, has decided to join us. Hey, Steph. You there. Thank you for coming. Yeah, I was going to say, I haven't even given my first test in my class yet. <laughs> Not that, that won't be for another couple of weeks. Oh. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, we're not, to, we're not to midterms yet either, so. Monica, so thank you for coming today, Monica. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that the best way to accomplish work is to procrastinate and do other things, and then it causes a fire of impending doom and then Mm -hmm. you know is it good i don't know it's done right so (laughs) that causes invention it makes you it gets the creative juices flowing right this is a necessary part of the creative process for if my kids get to have minors in drugs and alcohol i don't have time for that anymore i have time to fuck around and record a podcast awesome (laughs) well thank you appreciate you Getting away from your non-drugs and non-alcohol and non-sex and finals to, or no, midterms to do this with us. This is it. So what anyway, are we doing today, Mav? We're doing, like, <laughs> apparently just outing, well, I was going to say ourselves, but I've said nothing. I'm a good boy. I've said nothing untoward and like, not, you know, yeah. freaks. 
Not so far today I in this know, podcast. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, this is an interesting. There's no call for comments for this one because it's just sort of some stuff that happened on my own personal Facebook page in the last two weeks. But also, everybody else is on the internet. So I, I want to talk about this is a pop culture podcast, and I want to talk about levicism. And I know our listeners don't know what that is, and we'll get to it. But basically, a couple weeks ago, as we record and as you listen to this, uh, presuming you listened to it when it came out, the Oscar nominations came out and it was a big thing where people were upset that Barbie didn't get nominated. It got snubbed for Oscars. Now, to be fair, Barbie was nominated for like eight Oscars, so it didn't get snubbed. It was it, it got a fair amount of nominations, but in particular, Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie got snubbed in that they were not nominated for Best Director and Best Actress. Now they were nominated for Best called Best Picture, but the Best Picture Award goes to producers and for Best Screenwriter. But I don't think in the initial complaints, the initial hot takes, it was a lot of... And well, Greta wrote it. Huh? Greta wrote it. Yeah, Greta Gerwig wrote and directed it. Mm -hmm. Margot Robbie produced and starred in it. So they were each nominated for something. But but the, the initial complaints were that they had been snubbed and they weren't nominated at all, which wasn't true. I mean, it didn't say... And then there was also a lot of... and. You know, you misunderstood the point of the movie because Ryan Gosling got nominated off the back of it. And I'm like, R Ryan had nothing to do with this. Like, Ryan's not eligible for Best Director or Best Actress. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, which is a thing that he was in this film. So it was for Best that Supporting was a Song, take. which, quite frankly, he it was deserves. the thing that everyone talked about when they went to the yes. movie was right. Ryan Gosling doing his little Mickey Mouse Club. So, like, yeah. He's good. So like I so so like so so I wrote a thing basically defending it point by point, which you know, I got a bunch of people talking and resharing this thing that I wrote where I basically went through and I said Barbie wasn't screwed. It was nominated for several awards. Gosling didn't undercut the message of the film by being nominated. He went and he got a part in, his, in a movie and he worked his ass off as you are supposed to do. So and I said, now, is the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences sexist? They absolutely are. Is this an evidence of them being sexist? No, not this. They're not sexist for this reason. And I said, so first off, the fact that Greta was nominated for screenwriting, that there was a woman nominated for Best Director. Now, were half people women? No. So that's a problem. But this is not a thing of where they kept women out. They just didn't like this movie as much as the regular public did. And so I so I wanted to point that out because in order to say that Greta should have been nominated, should we have kicked out Killers of the Flower Moon? You know, what is the picture that we that shouldn't have been nominated? Should it Zone of Interest, Poor Things, Oppenheimer, Anatomy of the Fall? Which one shouldn't have been nominated for Best Director in order to make room for Greta Gerwig? Similarly. Margot Robbie was not nominated for Best Actress, but Annette Bening was, Lily Gladstone was, Sandra Huller, Harry Mulligan, and Emma Stone, all of whom did great in their movies. So should one of them be bumped to get the woman who starred in Barbie? Because 
I haven't seen all the movies, but I've seen several of them. And Margot wasn't as good as any of those people. <laughs> like the surprise was because you know, everybody, everybody knew that Emma Stone was going to be nominated. Everybody knew that Carrie Mulligan was going to be nominated. Sandra Huller and Lily Gladstone. None of them are surprises. The surprise was Annette Benning, where people thought that uh, Margot Robbie was going to be nominated. And you know what? Annette Benning was frankly, better in her movie. Yeah. Do I want yeah, lesbian was. representation over Barbie? Yeah, <laughs> but, but also she was, I mean, just in a pure, like purely in a objectively judging as a critic of film, Annette Benning was I mean, better. And I'm, so, and I'm sorry if that bothers people, but like you didn't see the movie. I know because yeah, she was really good. Yeah, yeah. Steph saw the movie. Yeah, she's really good in it. You know, so it was like ahead. Nyad is basically Annette Benning's like revenant. Like it is an endurance challenge. You cannot tell me. She yeah. is not born mm -hmm. for a Best mm -hmm. Actor nomination, taking yeah. on the right. physicality of that role. Yeah. And it was great. So, so there's that. And then I want I talked a little bit about Ryan Gosling. The reason Ryan Gosling got nominated was that the Best Supporting Actor category was not as dense this year as the Lead Actress category. There was just more spots. There were more spots available. Gosling is up against Sterling K. Brown for American Fiction, who was good, but he isn't going to beat Gosling. De Niro for Killers of the Flower Moon, who, you know, De Niro's had his, had his shot before. And then Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things. And none of them are going to win because Robert Downey Jr. is going to win for Oppenheimer. That's how it's going to work. So was that the, the gay brother that was nominated? For In American Fiction, yes. Okay, yes. all right. Yeah, they, yeah, they were, yeah. So they're, they're all, she's talking about In American Fiction, which we actually went and saw today. And, you know... They all did great, but Gosling was more on par with any of their performance, if not exceeding them, than Margot Robbie was with the wonderful women who, who are nominated for Best Actress. So I had a problem with all of that. And then I had a problem with the fact that out of all of this, all the hot takes, no one was mentioning that America Ferrara was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. And, and like people were complaining that Ryan Gosling was stealing their thunder, but they were ignoring that America Ferrara was, was nominated for Supporting Actress. Literally the same award, other than the gender swap, that Gosling was nominated for. They are on exactly equal footing, and I do think she deserves it. She's going to lose, because she's up against um, Emily Blunt and Oppenheimer, Daniela Brooks and Color Purple and Jodie Foster and Nyad, and they're all going to lose to Divine Joy Randolph, who was in The Holdovers and was amazing. Oh, right. The right. Oh, yeah. She won the Golden Globes. <laughs> yeah, and she's going to... So she's going to win. So, by the way, this is not our Oscar show. We should point that out, because we'll, we're going to do an Oscar show in the future, but this is not it. So all of that, like, happened, and I was basically, you know, sort of reviewing why, you know, I think people are being sexist and racist inherently not intentionally but they're being inherently sexist and racist by ignoring america ferrara mm -hmm. and ignoring all the women who did work hard to get nominated and they're just upset that the one movie that they saw didn't mm -hmm. get nominated for even more because again barbie was nominated for eight oscars it's plenty you know and i think that people don't quite understand what the oscars are because some people agreed with me and then other people sort of started arguing with me a little bit about like, well, you don't understand how important this is and representation for women. And, and I was like, I do understand the difference is you're only arguing 
about this one toy commercial of a movie, which I loved. I very much enjoyed that film. But, like, there are other movies, and you have to understand what the Oscars are. And then that turned into a conversation about, well, maybe the Oscars could change because they're too elitist, and it's just a bunch of what old white men want. And I said, that is true, but that's also what makes the Oscars special. And then I realized that I had a whole podcast, so I needed to do an episode on levicism which is a thing that I teach in my cultural studies class that I teach, right? And explaining why the Oscars are special compared to the People's Choice Awards, which are coming up in a week as this drops, a week and a half, and of which I expect Barbie to do extremely well. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about levicism, a concept that no one understands, but is important to popular culture and award shows like the Oscars. and why shows like the Oscars exist and why they're still important. Because some people were like, well, why does anybody care about the Oscars anymore anyway? It's like, there are actually a lot of good reasons to care about the Oscars. So we're going to talk about that and why you should probably care more about the People's Choice Awards. That's today. It's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. <laughs> so are you going to define levicism? Yes, or? Okay. I can do that. <laughs> so have you ever heard the term? No. Okay. <laughs> even in, And it's weird because even living with me for the last 20 years, right? Like, uh, more than 20 years, however long we've been together. I just realized couldn't be long because I'm only like 25. So <laughs> no, but for as long as we've been together, you've never even heard me say it. Okay. So the Levises, Queenie and Frank Levis, they're two cultural critics from like a hundred years ago. And they're, I'm going to greatly simplify a whole week worth of lectures in my class and say they, and then a person named Matthew Arnold, who they sort of, are extending the work of they held the base opinion that culture was a thing that was the domain of the culturally elite the rich the powerful the intellectual and their jobs as the elites is to create a culture that is the good stuff that we can give to the peons to the regular people to the common folk and the common folk will look to the elites and say oh okay I see a sophisticated movie is is Oppenheimer. I that we should all in, endeavor to be Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon or whatever the Oscar bait du jour is. Like that's their feeling that the that there is common people, mass culture, you know, anarchy, what we would now call pop culture, and then there's good stuff, and it is the job of the culturally elite to decide what the good stuff is because the regular people are not qualified to decide that on their own. It's kind of like that scene from American fiction, actually. It is kind of like that scene from American fiction that where that happens. Yeah. Now, nah, people hate this, but that's what the Academy is. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is literally just an exercise in elitism. It only exists to be culturally elite to hmm. tell you what the good stuff is. Gotcha. That's, they are nothing more than that. that now, you can like them or you can not like them. And there's a lot of reasons to think that, like, the idea, and this is something I teach my kids, you can think the idea of levicism is bullshit. I largely do. But if you take the idea of elitism away, the academy is nothing. There's nothing left. That's all they have going for them. Monica, you're aware of them, and you live right under their nose. Would you agree? <laughs> oh, yes. I, I think we also need to talk about how much this is actually just a game of money too, right? Yeah. Like when we are talking mm -hmm. about elitism, 
we are essentially assigning a value to a thing. Because when it comes to the idea of like how much did it cost to make a movie, a lot of times mm-hmm. these movie movies that are put out by the Academy, like they are frankly never going to be as expensive as something that is using a Marvel level of green screens that needs animation for every single frame, right? Even a movie every like... Once in a while, you'll, you'll get an Oppenheimer every once in a while. Yes, which is- and then that is because Christopher Nolan insists on doing everything for real a million yeah. times, and that is right. ungodly expensive in its own right. And so there's like you three have- guys in Hollywood who have that kind of, who have that kind of pull. Like, it's basically... Right, and Nolan, Nolan be Spielberg... Guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Barbie too, right? A movie that can cause an international pink paint shortage, like you yeah. that's not a cheap movie to make, right? And a right. movie that is allowed to dip into the official Chanel archives for all of the costumes, like, yes, they are not quite spending like endgame levels of money, but they're they're pretty close. But most of these movies that you're going to, there is something about the cultural elitism of assigning a value based on yeah the idea of the cultural prestige something like killers of the flower moon is an incredibly expensive movie to make because you decided it should be an hour and a half longer than everything else and you Mm -hmm. actually gave the costume designer the money to like buy real textiles but i've also seen a lot of period movies that put the entire cast in the same outfit for the entire thing right so there is something about like it's a game of money that is being poured into not always the film, but really mm-hmm. into the marketing campaign behind all of them, right? Mm-hmm. So the thing about the Oscars is it is a governing body of people who get to vote. And when we think about the idea that all of these people are voting based on the movies they actually like, kind of. But they're also kind of voting on movies that they liked because someone invited them to a nice house to eat a catered Mm -hmm. dinner and to talk with, you know, the director or the actor themselves as part of this campaign. And that's part of what made that movie stick out as Mm -hmm. particularly memorable to them rather than some of the other movies that were nominated that might have not come with an expensive dinner at a nice house in the Hollywood Hills. Or even when it comes down to when we do our Oscars show every year. I tend to get the the best documentary, things like the best documentary short category correct. The mm-hmm. only reason I know to do that all. is because, no, it's not because, I, it's not because I watch them all. It's because I drive around L.A. and uh, I notice which documentary short afforded a billboard. Yes. Yeah. And quite frankly, like that is the thing that everyone else is voting on, too. It's the thing that is sitting at the top. It, it is the skim on the top of your milk, mm-hmm. right? At, at the top of your consciousness <laughs> when it comes time for voting. And and the fact that most of that is coming from money being pushed at people to go do other elite things because mm-hmm. not everyone is invited to these parties in the hills, right? You have to have an invitation. A lot of times they don't have a plus one. And it really is absolutely as snooty and as showy as I am making it sound on purpose mm-hmm. because people want to feel special and want to yeah. feel like their opinion matters when it comes time for voting and so yeah there there is a like this is a very insular circle of mm-hmm. is the oscars problematic by the people that they have chosen to let into this circle not absolutely. being very diverse absolutely 
but also this idea of like, is it a very predictable game that oh, most totally. people do not have awareness of how it actually functions? That's mm-hmm. the larger problem here is that the critique is not actually of the academy system. It's a bunch of people being upset about not understanding the way the gig the game has been rigged the entire time, right? Well, and wanting to rig the game a different way, right? Because I don't think any <laughs> the thing with picking an actual best picture is you have to decide what best means, right? And I would argue that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences doesn't mean the same thing by what was the best movie of the year as Joe Random who's saying what his or her favorite movie of the year was, right? Like, if I ask you, Stephanie, or Monica, or I say myself, or we ask, you know, Hannah or Wayne or Katya, any of our co-host or any of our friends, like what their favorite movie is or what the best movie of 2023 is, there's going to be some overlap, but largely we're going to give you like, you know, a dozen different answers if we ask I'm going to tell you it's Saltburn and you're going to tell me I'm crazy, like because we did an entire episode about how you thought it was a trash movie and I thought it was was trash. I just thought it was (laughs) I thought it was overrated. I actually enjoyed it, but I thought it was overrated for what it was. And but that's fine because the fun of doing an like our, our Saltburn episode, the fun of doing an episode like that, any of our critique episodes is in the conversation, right? Like what I enjoy about movies what I enjoy about stories, not even just movies, what I enjoy about books, about TV shows, is I like watching a thing and then being able to discuss it with my friends. You know, my snooty, artsy professor friends, but also just like random friends of mine, right? Like, I love being able to go to a Marvel movie and then go to the comic book store and just talk to random other comic book fans about whether or not they loved what's the most recent, the Marvels, I guess, is the most recent one, right? Like, like, did you like the Marvels? Did you not like the Marvels? Why? You know, like, that's an interesting conversation to me, and it extends the process of the movie. Like, I'm enjoying the movie on two levels. I'm enjoying the movie on just seeing the spectacle of film unfold before me, but I'm also enjoying the discourse that happens in the comic book shop. And there's a separate discourse that happens, particularly with very popular movies, in my classroom, right? Because I get to teach, you know, I'm blessed enough that my job is teaching pop culture classes. So if, if a kid signed up for intro to pop culture, the chances are they probably saw at least a few Marvel movies in the last couple of years, right? Most of them have seen Barbie because if they're interested in pop culture, that was on the pop culture zeitgeist. So that's kind of fun. And I think that in fairness to the Academy, it's okay to have Killers of the Flower Moon or Oppenheimer be part of the fun being to be a part of that experience where the culturally elite get together and go to dinners that, you know, you and I will never be at. Like, like, like we're not going to go to even living in in L.A., Monica, you're not going to get to go to the Scorsese dinner, right? Like you might know a couple of people who are involved in the scene, but you're not going to the Scorsese dinner because the Scorsese dinner is, you know, an extremely elite billion dollar affair. And that's kind of the point, right? Like, like the point of the Levicism, the argument is there's this culturally elite high culture world that has value in that the people who are part of that world have decided that it has value 
and they're telling us it has value over and over again. This is them saying, hey, this is the foot that we want to put forward. This is what we want to say high society is about in the year 2023, 2024, whatever year, right? In the year 2023, we want to say high society was thinking about this issue. They were thinking about these people. We were thinking about this, these directors. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make a statement. And by they, I mean, I'm saying it like it's an organized thing. It kind of is. The Academy is only 10,000 people. And that's 2,000 more than it was like five years ago. Like they greatly increased their numbers in the last couple of years to diversify. But it's 10,500 members as of 2023. Hmm. That's it. I do think that's a lot, actually. Not really. 10,000 people? That's like More than I thought. Well, but I thought it was in the hundreds. But it's a third the population of the university I teach at. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's like, like, like we've got like 30,000 students. Yeah, I guess I thought, it, yeah. Yeah. And I just so thought it was more elite. Yeah. It's, well, if you, so the Golden Globes Association, formerly the Hollywood Foreign Press, was 200 people. Like, it, yeah, that's probably my baseline. The joke for the Golden Globes was always, you know, they're such star fuckers that if you want to win a Golden Globe, you could essentially yeah. just go out to dinner with everyone voting, and that would guarantee you the Golden Globe because there were few enough people. That you literally, if you tried hard enough, you could go, if there are 200 people and you can go out to dinner for it with 101 of them, that guarantees you the win. Right. What do you want to do with so, the Oscars? Now, maybe we should talk about who actually is in that 10,000, right? Sure. Because I do think that maybe that is part of the misnomer because there is a lot of discussion about like, why is that group so old and white? Right. And mm-hmm. how do we make it not old and white? What is the actual or adding someone new to the academy? Right. Should I mean, um, should we make it that which I know sounds like I'm making like I'm devil's advocating, but I'm not quite. I'm saying that there's value in diversifying, but also I think that one of the reasons we care about the Oscars is because they're old and white and it gives us a face to complain at. I do think that's <laughs> true because I, I think that Something about if oh, we're right going to talk about this, oh, as, right male on street. We should be. It's it's literally the demon. Like right now, the demonized face of America of cultural elitism: old, white, male, Christian, straight, and by old, seventy. You know, like like I mean, like literally senior citizens, very rich, is the cartoon character. Yeah, I do think that it is problematic, but I do think that there is a value system, yes, of having this person that then one, I can watch these things and think about how I would respond to them and what that means about my own identity, right? Mm -hmm. I I do think that I would like to be able to see more representation of my own identity within the cultural elite, right? Like, I think that Mm -hmm. is valid, and I think that it should not be so old and white, because I would like to think that the cultural elite could have more diverse voices and representations about what should count as high art. Because I think that a lot of the reasons that we don't consider some things high art or over others is frankly sexist and racist. But I do think that there is something in terms of if we were talking about the larger societal role of having this thing for then me to compare myself to think about the ways in which I want to have dialogue or want to produce my own art that might be in narrative with those things and the other sort of negotiated readings that might come or other forms of cultural production that might come out as a response to the things that the elite consider to be elite, right? 
And so I think that there is a sense in which I want both, but yes, that can be hard because then there is sort of this, well, where is the dividing line? Because there will always be basically these arbiters of case deciding what Mm -hmm. gets to be in and out of the circle. I want the circle to be a bit wider. I am really happy with the fact that, for example, the Academy is starting to nominate more international films, that this is not just which American films are the best of the year, but which sort of global cinema films are the best of the year. I think that's a really wonderful development to be having because our culture is becoming more globalized and with the internet and access to these films, we have a lot more access to actually be able to watch them rather than just going to the art house cinema, which used to be the only place that I could go to see these things. So like, I think that is a great development and a great example of how the cultural elite circle can get a little bit wider. Right. But I think we should talk about the whole, why does it look the way it does right now? Why is it so old and white? And one, right. It's a lot of the people who are in the Academy are because they made a thing that got nominated for the Academy. And because the Academy used to be one, that means it's a lot of old because the Academy has been going for a long time. Two, it's a lot of white because we only started adding in diversity very recently, which, yes, like is a part of the ago. problem. Yeah. But if if you are deciding that one of the major characteristics of membership should be that you previously won an award, it's like, well, then, of course, it's going to be full of old, white, straight Christian mm-hmm. dudes, right? Right, because it's a, so it's, a, it's an organization that is 97 years old. This is the 96 Academy Awards. There's a double up here. Don't worry about it. But it's basically nearly 100 years it's an organization that exists to so they take the term academy very seriously academy of motion picture arts and sciences they are trying to be a you know like the academy you know like an like, educational institution educational but elitist like they are like they are like in much the same way as the criticism of the academy i.e. what we do for a living the academic world is the ivory tower the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences aspires to be the ivory tower. Like they don't see that as an insult. They are trying to be high culture. That's the goal. But the existence of the Oscars of the Academy Awards is largely, and it's very complex, but it's essentially was designed. Uh, a lot of times people will say it as a union busting tactic. I think that is a simplification, but also it's true. It was designed to, in during the time when the motion picture studio system was building and they had a lot of actors and producers and directors complaining that the studios had too much power and, and they weren't being recognized and they weren't getting the financial rewards that they deserved. Basically, it was a way of, well, we can throw you some statues, you know, <laughs> like like it was kind of a look over here. Don't look at the way we're where you reaching. So there is a little bit of that. Wait, so who originally like formed this, the Academy? The guilds and the producers and like people got together and they did an award ceremony rather than paying them fairly. That's but we're going back 100 years. So that's where it starts. And it's always been built upon that. Right. Like so. So the cultural elitism is sort of built in. And, you know, and there, you know, as Monica said, if you start there and you start with a system that was inherently 
exclusionary to start with. And then you keep building upon that for well, just like any other institution, 85 years to expect that you're going to fix it in 10 years without just, you know, destroying it and starting over, you know, burning it down. It's the defund the police problem, right? Can you fix the police with incremental change? Not really, because there's always going to be a greater base than of the institutional racism that's always going to pervade it. So the Oscars are the same way. Now, the question is, do you want to? Because the easy fix for the Oscars is if you really care that it's just this culturally elite, culturally elite group that is largely out of touch, that doesn't understand that the world has moved on, that the world is more diverse. And I do think they actually sort of do understand a little bit, and I'll get to that in a moment. But if you really believe that we need to not care about the inclinations of these 10,000 ridiculously rich people who are over, you know, then why, then there's a solution. We could just have another award show, right? Like, I don't, like, why are the Oscars special? We could just say, hey, let's see what the people like. And we've done that. We've got the People's Choice Awards. We've got the MTV Movie Awards. If you care about special certain groups, we've got the NAACP Image Awards, right? Like, we've got other groups, but the Oscars always feel special because people are buying into their own argument of, the Oscars said we were culturally elite. And then they sold themselves as being culturally elite and no one else wants to let you to let go. We could just all ignore it, but we don't. And that matters. Yeah. So are you saying that, like, if you win any Oscar, you're automatically? It's not automatic, but it's a you good, have to sort of good, apply. No, it, uh -huh. you have to be invited. But you uh, it, uh, the essentially you you can assume that if as an Oscar winner, you're probably going to be get into the Academy. Um, okay, and it has to be an Oscar, not a Golden Globe or anything. No, the Academy Award, okay. they don't care. The Golden Globes is an entirely different organization. There, there, is no, there is no formal relationship between the Globes and... The, the Globes are largely given out by critics. The, formerly the Hollywood Foreign Press, and now it's just called the Golden Globes Association. Hollywood Foreign Press had its own massive amount of scandals to where they were just dissolved two years ago. So, but the Golden Globes are... Their awards are... The entire membership of, the, of that governing body are just film critics, film and television critics. So there is, I can't say for sure that there's no overlap because it's entirely possible that there's somebody who's in the, who's, who happens to be a film critic that gets to vote in the Globes and also happens to have been a producer on Titanic or something. And therefore, like, I don't know for sure, but if there is an overlap, it would be minuscule because remember the Golden Globes is like 300 people. And it, like, it really is that small. And the Oscars is like 10,000 people, most of whom are not critics. They're mostly industry professionals. They're either actors or they're producers or they're cameramen. You know, they're people who are in the Academy, on, but on a high level. It's not like, like, it's not being, you don't get to be in the Academy by being a cameraman. You get to be in the Academy by winning a cinematographer. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's kind of insular that they're voted on by the Academy and that lets them into, or at least gives them a possible... Right, you know, but they can also just invite you. You don't have to win. Like, there are... So in their attempt to diversify a couple of years ago, they added a bunch of people. Like, Zendaya is specifically an Academy member. She is a voting Academy member as of, like, two years ago. She's not. She's never been nominated for anything. They just wanted... They wanted, okay, they, they wanted more representation by younger people, by more women and by people of color, and she matched all the boxes, so they invited her. So she was like, and since she was like 25 years old at the time, or 23 or whatever she was, like she 
lower the age but it's like the, because the average age at the time was like 70. yeah like she naturally lowered the age mm -hmm. and raised the representation of women and of people of color like it was literally it was that cynical to invite her so that matters uh, i guess but my argument is also i think that what the academy is good at is the academy is good at telling you what high society wants you to think about it. So when Monica says they are inviting more films from other parts of the world, that's true. But I don't think that's, but I think that's intentional, right? That's them saying, we want you to realize that we're not as racist as we used to be. Yes, absolutely. Can you be non-American and be a member? Okay, absolutely. And there are plenty of people who are non-American. And I think, Mav, maybe a really good example is, I mean, I always use, costume design because it is the thing that I'm most familiar with but the costume designers guild has their own set of awards and when you go to the awards there are different subcategories for best costume design of a film right and it would be best period film best contemporary film best sci-fi film etc because they understand you might be evaluating these films on different criteria something like a sci-fi film isn't necessarily going to be able to use a lot of what would be in a costume house, right? Because it, it might be very specific to this sci-fi world. And you might've had to have made a lot of the costumes because they just didn't exist in stores or in rental houses versus something like, I, okay, Napoleon is nominated, right? When you mm -hmm. look at Angels and Cosprop and all of these European costume houses that supply every single BBC period drama ever. They have hundreds and hundreds of period clothes to put all of the background extras in that you didn't need to make, right? And so some of that just then becomes a organizing game of picking up all of that stuff and working with your background fitters to put people in those clothes rather than needing to make them, which isn't something that you can necessarily do with a contemporary show because you might need to go and literally go to a store and buy everything that everyone is wearing. Or you could let background extras bring their own clothes, literally mm -hmm. set, because it's just things that exist in their closet. Right. And people understand that when you go to the Costume Designers Guild and they vote knowing that there is a difference in each of those jobs and in each of those skill sets. And quite frankly, a lot of costumers, they do specialize in working in period versus contemporary, for example. Because it's a very different skill set, because it means something it. different to be able to work in a rental house versus to be able to shop things at the mall. Now, can I read the categories look, just so people know. Can I just read the categories for the CDGAs? Yeah, so, sure. Okay, so so the Costume Designers Guild Awards. Here are the categories that uh, that are being celebrated. You've got excellence in contemporary film, excellence excellence in period film. Excellence in sci-fi slash fantasy film, excellence in contemporary television, excellence in period television, excellence in sci-fi slash fantasy television, excellence in variety, reality, contemporary competition or live television, excellence in short form design, and excellence in costume illustration. So because they are recognizing like even the difference between shooting a contemporary film and shooting a contemporary television show are different enough. Or the Costume Designers Guild to be like, yeah, that's two different awards. Yeah, I was wondering about that, why there were different awards for film and, and money. And, scope. 
Yeah. It is because it's different skill sets. Yeah, because you have to balance the budget entirely differently. Mm-hmm. Okay, budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Than you do off of a, a 10 episode run. It's because mm-hmm. the timeline is very different on the way that you shoot film versus television. So it, it does become that there is just very different skill sets and it's very different jobs. And a lot of people, when they work, they kind of maybe won't do the transition. They'll just do TV or they'll just do television. Like there just are these ideas of specialization within the field itself. It's very nuanced unless you're working in it. Now, when you go over to the Oscar category, one of the things that's very important about Academy is in each of these categories, you are not voting for every category. You are voting for the thing that you are designated for. So for example, in the screenwriting categories, it's just people who are part of the Academy screenwriting. So well, even for, though it's for nominees, for the Oscars for nominees, it's that. But you can vote in once you're in the Academy. Yes. If once the nominees are out, you can vote on anything that you want okay. to. You just can't nominate yes. in anything okay. that you want to. So it's All a, right. so it's a very I was wondering about that. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. And it's also we should I should clarify because it I don't know if it's gonna matter, but like the way the votes work for the nominations is a weird, it's not first past the post. It's not popular choice for nominations. It is a round robin of like instant runoff, like second choice, third choice. It's not even as simple as, as like rank choice, the way rank chase voting works. It's a do everybody's first choice, then calculate to see if somebody has passed the post if not dump the ones that tie it's it is a super complicated process for coming up with the nominees which is why things get weird and it's also why you don't want to do things like if you're running a campaign you have to really think about okay I have two male supporting actors in my film. Do I want to put the money in for both of them or will I split their vote? Can I maximize my dollar by only nominating one, even though the other guy was also good? And there it's complicated and there's a lot of financial math that goes into it because you're really buying the nomination in a way. You're not paying anybody specific. You're you're advertising, but you're making a financial choice in order to hope that the end game is to be able to put on your DVD box, nominate it for an Academy Award. <laughs> like there's so much, it's literally, it's a game. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. game, a financial game that goes into building it. So it's and complex. So, and then yeah. once that nomination is out, you can just vote for whoever you want. Yes. So some of that game then is also recognizing not just what people in your industry are going to like, recognize and feel like was a good thing but also people who aren't in your category so if we go back to costume design and we look at what actually is nominated for the academy knowing that this was largely people in costuming who came up with these nominees but then they are presenting Mm -hmm. it to the entire academy to vote on as to what counts as quote-unquote a good costume and if we think about we just Mm -hmm. narrowed all of If we're just looking at film, it's three categories and we have to, and each of those three categories does usually have five nominees for the CDG awards. But now we need to take those 15 and we need to turn them into just five for the Academy Awards. 
So the nominees mm-hmm. end up being and Barbie. twenty if you count the illustration ones too, because because yes, exactly. illustration ends up getting its own category and the CDGs. Yes. So and, and which the which has got to be weird to anybody who's not in the industry that to know why those pictures of the costume exactly is its own award. Yeah, but anyway, but it does. So there's up to twenty different nominees. Exactly. Probably so, not because probably some of the illustrations are also nominated for another award. So you know, but. So, so the illustrations and the costume designs that are roughly 20 get narrowed down to five. And the five are Barbie, Pillars of the Flower Moon, Napoleon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Thing. And when no you sci-fi fantasy this year, which is no odd. sci-fi fantasy. There is you will also notice hardly ever a contemporary film that makes it into Ooh, that no. list. It is mm. things that people are when they go, wow, that's a costume, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is very much the, somebody probably spent a lot of money and a lot of time at a sewing machine. You probably didn't buy most of these clothes. Like, these are things that are the spectacle and peak of what someone with an unlimited budget is allowed to dress people in. And when you think about this, like the disparity of what that might mean for people who work within the industry versus then what that category turns into, which is then going to decide what people think the best costume is. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a really good example of this elitism that we're talking about and the ways that things sort of get flattened out. And we do end up with what people would consider to be some version of high art, high culture as being in some regards, the thing that like took the most work, but also the thing that took the most work because they had the most money to be allowed to have the luxury of time and materials to make it the most work. Right. And so there, there is something about when you think through things that way, makes more sense how we end up with these categories that don't feel very representative of what the actual field or job really looks like. So to just stay on that one, and, and these are, again, this is not my official Oscar guesses yet, because, I mean, a secret is the reason Monica and I do well in this game when we play the Academy guessing game is that we actually check all the guild awards. That's the secret, right? You want to go and see how they're going, but those haven't happened yet. We know who the nominees are, but we don't know who we don't know what they are, but just knowing in general, how the Academy votes. So of the five nominees that Monica read, you can probably eliminate Oppenheimer and Barbie because Oppenheimer, they're going to say, well, they're suits. And Barbie, they're going to say, well, they're pink suits. And that's and like and it's literally going to be going that far because we often say this when we're talking about the best of the best director awards. At some point when the Academy's voting, they're not voting for the best costume. They're voting for the most costume. They're voting for yeah. the most acting. Here, and so, here's the thing. It's a, so you can look at it like, poor things, there's jewels on those. That looks like it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's really what it comes down to. It's a two-pony race. And I can tell you it's a two-pony race based on the Academy, and based on the Guild. The Guild, if it were up to yeah. them, is going to pick four things. The Academy, if it four were things. up to them, is <laughs> going to pick, pick Killers of the Flower Moon. Of the flower moon. And <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like... We understand the game. But, like, that's part of the... But I think that there's... 
I think there's value in the game. I mean, we're sort of so that like I would love to be one day in the in critic groups so that I can we're saying this offline before we show started. I would love to be in the critic groups one day so that I could like vote in Critics Choice Awards. That's like my dream because I actually do enjoy this kind of work. And then Steph said, and then you could be in the Academy. It's like, I don't want to be in the Academy. I like criticizing the Academy. There's a lot of value in the Academy, in a Levisite group. The value of Levisism to me as a cultural theorist is having someone to complain at, right? Like I, and, and also to study, right? I like being able to look at the organized group that is the epitome of high society, which is what the academy aspires to be, and say, like, when, when, when the academy gets together and says, we have recognized that there is racism in America. We feel bad about this. What can we do? Okay. Green Book. We have solved racism. <laughs> like, like, the fact that they made that decision and that I knew they were going to make that decision. If you go back, and, Monica wasn't on the show yet that, that year, but like Hannah was so sure Green Book wasn't going to win. And I was like, they absolutely will, because Green Book is the is Hollywood's chance to say we've solved racism. The fact that is the value of the culturally elite. Well, we are going to recognize it in that in, in our job is done. That's how I knew Green Book was going to win. And also. That's interesting to say that the world got to a place where the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was saying, all right, maybe we need to do better. And this was their way of doing better, I think, is an important cultural moment mm. in the same way as I also want to know where the Image Awards are, the NAACA Image, mm -hmm. Image Awards. And I want to know, I watch the, I love watching the SAG After Awards. The SAGs are fun. Nobody watches the SAGs but me. I've, I've tried to get Steph to watch them before, and she, and she goes, are these the Oscars? And I'm like, no, they're the sad. That was on YouTube, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's yeah, part of it, right? Is it is what, what's paying for network television, right? And when yeah. we are talking about what counts as the elite telling the masses, nothing could be mm -hmm. greater than what is the thing that ends up on. And it's not like network TV that you have to pay a cable channel for. It's broadcast. Like, yeah. you can watch broadcast. If your TV is from 1954 and it only has access to three channels because it's just little buttons, guess what? You can still get the Oscars, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> rabbit ears. Yeah. And, and, and that's important, right? Like, that's a, that is a, that is an important cultural thing to say that this is where the world is right now. Um, at least so that didn't, the eyes there weren't any films like that during like the civil rights movement, like guess who's coming to, to dinner or things like that. I mean, that won the Academy Award. Absolutely. Okay. Because, uh, but then there has to be restated again. <laughs> oh, it's wrong before, but now I think in any, so the Academy Awards are a snapshot that doesn't have a lot of good memory. What they what the Academy remembers is it remembers individuals that they got wrong. And so sometimes you can pick an award because you know that somebody deserves a do-over. Like like when Spike Lee won his 
his best screenwriting award for Black Klansman. For, for Black Klansman, I think. Was it Black Klansman yes, or was it, it was for Blood? Black Klansman? For, for Black Klansman, but really for Do the Right Thing? <laughs> because the Academy knows that like they meant to that, that they should have nominated Spike and given him an award for Do the Right Thing twenty years earlier and they fucked up. So they just kinda had to find a moment. Was it even nominated? No. No. Okay. No. Famously snubbed. Uh, <laughs> famously okay. snubbed at the Oscars. All right. To the to the point where Kim Bassinger was presenting an award and she used her speech to complain that the Academy fucked up by not nominating Spike wow. Lee for Do the Right Thing. I didn't think of her as a was, political voice. No, but it was an obvious... Oh, okay, it was so obvious. Okay. And, and, and it didn't sit... And it was clearly off script because mm-hmm. it wasn't written well. It just was not sitting right with Kim Bessinger, the person personally. And she's like, hey, they gave me a live mic, so I'm going to complain right here that Probably they should have nominated Spike Lee, and we're all thinking it, and we all know it. Mm. And like there was a, and there was thunderous applause, and it just went off on national television because she knew that it was wrong. We um, we've got five great films here, and they're great for one reason: because they tell the truth. But there is one film missing from this list that deserves to be on it, because ironically. It might tell the biggest truth of all. And that's do the right thing. Yes. 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 Okay, so on to business. So yeah, Spike was not nominated and it took a couple of decades and they're just like, oh yeah, make sure he gets an Oscar before he died. And okay, <laughs> that's kind of what happened there. So I think that there's that. But also, it's not that there's never been racism in Hollywood that they're aware of. It's that there's a point, like, every year, they are trying to make a statement. Right. Subconsciously. Yeah. What the major kind of sentiment is. Yeah. Of. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think there's, I don't think, I'm not, it's not like, it's like a, it's like the thing where people talk about the patriarchy, like it's just a specific organized body, but it's not. It's just sort of a zeitgeist kind of issue. There's a zeitgeist to Hollywood. And I think that there's a point where the Oscars want to make a statement about what Hollywood is with certain things like, so like Robert Downey Jr. is going to win for Best Supporting Actor for Oppenheimer. This is something I can pretty much guarantee without seeing the Guild Awards. I mean, unless something really crazy happens yeah. between now and now and, and, and voting time, we, we're pretty sure he's going to win. And he's phenomenal in Oppenheimer. But that's not the only reason he's winning. He's winning because the story of Robert Downey Jr. coming back from being a crackhead to be to be an Oscar winner is a good story. And because it's been a 40 year career and he's earned it. And that's mm-hmm. good. And that's what it is. It's the same reason Jamie Lee Curtis won for everything, everywhere, all at once, even though like she was good in it. She was certainly it's not like it's not like she didn't deserve it, but she didn't. You know, she I thought Stephanie Sue was better in everything, everywhere, all at once. And they were both nominated for supporting actress for the same movie. And I thought Stephanie was better. And but Stephanie didn't star in Trading Places and Halloween and True Lies. <laughs> and like Jamie Jamie Lee Curtis had a body of work, and she's older. And how many more slots was she going to yeah, get? Might be our so, list, yeah. so it was like, and she's you know she's Hollywood royalty. She's the definitive nepo baby done good. And it was like, you know what? Let's give Jamie Lee an Oscar. It's time. So. 
that's part of it. Kind like, of a consequence of having an older academy, too. Yes. The, I think all of that ties together mm-hmm. into being the story that is the Oscars. And I think that there's a folly in trying to change it, because if you're trying to change it, then what exactly are you trying to change, right? Like, you either care about them or you don't. I've seen Kevin Smith talk about this, where he's talked about how he doesn't feel bad that he's not going to win an Oscar. He's like, sure, it's nice to be recognized and everything. And he's like, and I like a lot of these movies. But But he says, I'm not good enough in the way they mean good to win an Oscar. And he knows that about himself. And he's not interested in becoming, he's not interested in making the kinds of films that win Oscars. He just wants to make clerks over and over again. Mm -hmm. Like that's the, those are the things that he enjoys doing. If the Academy one day decides that they are touched enough, because he's, you know, um, he's done some things that like, People largely believe that, that the writing on Clerks 3 is actually really good. Not a lot of people saw it, but it actually, it's a very touching movie about loss and grief and and it, it's really good chasing amy is a phenomenal movie that the buzz is probably almost got nominated mm. but he's not looking for that he'd rather make stoner comedies and stoner comedies don't win oscars and he knows that but i think he also understands that you can just be okay with that you don't need an oscar right <laughs> right like he gets recognition it's not like kevin smith is a fledging filmmaker that no one's ever heard of you know he's very good at the one thing that he does and i think greta gerwig like because i saw some people who were arguing with me when i made my post about well you know he's you know this is it it would be important because you don't understand how hard it is i like a lot of times people will argue with me because they've heard they've read a think piece and they assume that I'm a guy, so I can't possibly know anything about women. As And it's I'm not saying I know everything about women, but I do read every think piece. If you've seen a hot take in Hollywood, I assure you I've seen it, whether I agree with it or not. Like, it's probably not new because it's my job to, like, you know, read all of that. So, yes, I understand that it's harder for women to get things financed than it is for men to get things financed which is what the point somebody was making. So she, without the Oscar nomination, she's going to get screwed on her next film. I assure you, Greta Gerwig is not, Greta Gerwig made a billion dollar movie about a toy. It would be insane not to uh, take Gre- her Gre- Whatever Greta wants her next film project to be, it's going to get greenlit. That's because Hollywood is sexist, but Hollywood cares about money more than anything else. And whatever, if Greta Gerwig says that she wants to make a movie about someone taking a shit, someone will get, will write her a check right now. I think she has better sense than that. She's not going to do that. She's going to do something good um, because she got this by making good movies. She's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. She's a phenomenal filmmaker, and she's yeah. going to be able to. Lady Bird was hysterical. Lady Bird is one is one, just of, one of the funniest movies, in my opinion. Can we talk about the directing thing? Like how, like as a person that doesn't really know that much about about filmmaking, like how do you judge whether a director is good? I guess I can tell like, like with The Room, is that, is it Room or The Room? Which one are you talking about? The really bad one. The really bad one is, the really bad one is The Room. The Room, yeah. Okay. So it's like, obvi- I guess. It's weird because like, just as a side, mm-hmm. like when you say that, you're like, is it The Room or The Room? So Room is a very good movie. Yes. The Room is a very yes. bad movie. So, yeah, yeah, I forget the guy's name, but Tommy Wiseau. Yes, thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, like with that, like watching it, like I guess I can tell what, like from the, when it's a really bad director, it's ob- more obvious to me than when it's like a good competent director mm-hmm. <laughs> about what makes like directing, like what makes a director good, and what like decisions do they make that you know that <sighs> makes them win an award for best director. 
It's a complicated answer. Uh, Monica, you agree? This is a complicated answer that varies by film. And by director. Um, right? And by director, yeah. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> short ahead. answer is some version of the director is technically in charge of everything. The director... On set. On set. Yes. But, but also, <laughs> the producer is in charge of everything, but yeah. It, yes. it, it, um, that's a complicated question, yeah. Two different so, processes. But also, at the same time, kind of all the stuff that's not, that's offset, but might make its way on set question. But the director is going to be the one who is exacting what we will refer to as, like, the overall vision. And so they're the one who is stamping the sign of approval for everything when it goes mm -hmm. to, uh, when we say roll camera. And that means that the director has had meetings with the production designer about what they want the sets and the props to look like and they've had meetings with the cinematographer about what the shot list is going to be they've had and what the team is going to be and so they've essentially signed off with their hand in every single pie but then the thing that they are largely doing is working with the actors to deliver their performances on set it really depends on the director as to how much they care about the other things. Largely, a director exists to work with actors and happens to tangentially be involved with all the other stuff. But then you get some directors. A great example might be somebody like Boz Lerman, whose wife is his production and okay. costume designer, right? Mm -hmm. Boz Lerman cares a lot about what his movies look like, right? Yeah. And but other directors might have a greater sense of trust with their designers and only want to sort of give a final, they might have given a mood board and then they want to give the final sign of approval and that's mm -hmm. kind of it, right? And so that's why it really, or people talk a lot about Clint Eastwood really wants to keep that nine to five schedule because he's an old man who's got to get mm -hmm. to bed before the sun goes down, right? Like, mm -hmm. And so there are very <laughs> different directing styles, very different directors, but it essentially comes down to how cohesive is the overall film mm -hmm. as an entire unit and mm -hmm. with a greater emphasis on their the acting performances and the cohesion of those acting performances together. Yeah, thank you. That gives me a much better idea. But then it gets even comp more complicated because Monica touched on this at the very beginning. But it varies very much by film, right? So if I'm making a Marvel movie, right? A Marvel movie has an individual director. Maybe that's a Taika Waititi. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, a Russo Brothers, right? Like there are people who are in charge of that film. But also there is a producer, specifically his name is Kevin Feige, and also some people who work with him, who have greater control over the overall vision of the entire suite of Marvel films than most executive producers ever care about their individual films, which is why there's a sameness to all the Marvel movies, because there mm, is... Okay. So Kevin Feige is not technically a director, he's a producer, mm -hmm. but his job is largely to create a Marvel style that can pervade the directors. So you end up with you end up with something like the Thor movies, or the latter Thor movies, because Taika Waititi's in charge, end up being very funny in a way that, like, the Captain America movies aren't. But 
that's so but they also still feel like Marvel movies because you've got the tension of both an individual director being there and also this greater creative force that is technically in production. What you're saying is essentially a lot of people ask, like, what's the difference between a director and a producer between film and television? And quite honestly, Marvel movies function a lot more like like TV shows. TV shows. Mm -hmm. So a TV show, the executive producer slash showrunner is the person Mm -hmm. who has the larger overall vision. And then what they do Mm -hmm. is they hire directors to enact their vision on set on episodes. And so when we talk about Marvel, that that's a lot more similar versus a traditional film producer is essentially the money organizer. So they are not necessarily yes. the person who is putting up the money. What they are doing is they are the person who is going mm-hmm. to the studios that have the money. They're going to the distribution networks to figure out if you can get it to theaters, if you can get it streaming on an airplane, et mm-hmm. cetera, in order to raise enough money. Yeah in order for the director to then actually make the film. And because they are the person with the first strings, they do have some sense of pull of if they were saying like, you know, because I'm the one who is in charge of all the money, I really want this actor. That could be Mm -hmm. a decision that they sort of put their foot down on and the director does have to follow it. But for the most part, usually producers are decently hands-off because that's not actually their job on a movie. Mm-hmm. And then there's other weird... Like, so one of the arguments I got in when, with here was when somebody was trying to argue that Greta Gerwig should have been nominated for a director, and I said, well, who? which director would you bounce? Because, you know, does Yorgos Lanthimos not deserve a director, Dodd? He does, right? Does Christopher Nolan? He does, right? Scorsese? Yeah. Like, all these people are great mm-hmm. directors. So is Gerwig. The problem is, one of the things people say right now is, well, movie didn't make itself, so how could you be nominated for Best Picture and not Best Director? And the answer is, well, they're different awards. But also, the Academy now nominates 10 Best Pictures, which is a questionable thing, but only five Best Directors. So you can't have all of them mm-hmm. nominated. Yep. And specifically, Barbie was not nominated for Best Director, even though it was nominated for Best Picture, but also not nominated American Fiction, which we saw today. Great direction. The Holdovers, not nominated. Does The Holdovers not deserve it in some way? Past Lives, not nominated. Maestro, not nominated. These are all films that were that have a reasonable shot at Best Picture. They're not going to win, but they have a shot at it. And yet their directors are not out there. And someone said, well, yes, but... So someone came back and answered that me on that saying, well, Greta... Gerwig should have been nominated because their problem with Killers of the Flower Moon was that they thought Killers of the Flower Moon could have been half an hour shorter. And I said, okay, that's that's a fair, that's a fair criticism, but that's not directing, that's editing. And and Killers of the Flower Moon was edited by Thelma Schumacher, who, by the way, is a woman and has edited like all of Scorsese's films. And she's also nominated for- But isn't it still the director who has final say over that? Yes. Even if they like the editor wants to cut stuff out, then if they don't get the director's permission, then- Yes, Okay. except that it's a different job. So if you are Martin Scorsese, who's been working with Thelma Schumacher for decades, and that you have implicit trust in yeah, her, true. she's been nominated for Academy Awards, she knows what she's true, doing, true. and you're relatively hands-off because you trust her judgment. But you know who is a who's an editor's director or direct, um, uh, is Zack Snyder. 
Zack Snyder, for all of his faults, Zack Snyder is in the editing room making his edit. But he is very hands-on in, in the editing process as a director. There are some directors who like to overshoot and then find the story in the edit. And then other people who are just like, no, that's the editor's job. I don't know, but I'm guessing Ke uh, Clint Eastwood hasn't seen the hasn't seen the inside of an editor's room in a decade and a half, <laughs> probably because he does because he likes to work from nine to five and be done. That's mm. Yeah, no, he's asleep. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and I'm not, and I'm, I mean, we're making fun of him because we do that, but it's but to be fair to Clint, it's not his job, right? And same thing with Scorsese. Scorsese, Scorsese from Scorsese's point of view, I don't have to edit the movie. I hired a woman who's right. very good at that and has won Oscar. So unless there's something like really obvious and like feel really fat passionate about in their case, yeah. I expect that Scorsese would look at would look at Schumacher and say, "Nah, she knows what she's doing. She's probably right." I mean, look, okay, so let's see. She's received nine Academy Award nominations for for best editing, and she's won three. She won for The Aviator, The Departed, and Raging Bull. She wow. knows what she's That's, doing. She's been around for forever. Yeah, she's, she's been yeah. editing for... That's in the 70s, right? Yeah, she's been editing with him for decades. She's been doing... So she did Raging Bull, King of Comedy. And she's done non-Scorsese stuff, too. But she edited the Woodstock documentary, uh, Grace of My Heart. She's done, a, she's done a ton of Scorsese films. So he just figures she knows what she's doing. And he trusts her because she does know what she's doing. Like That's why he's been working with her, you know, for... 40 years or whatever. Okay. It was released at the end of 1980, actually. Which one? Raging Bull. Raging Bull is in 1980. Yeah, 1985. Yeah. yeah. So, but so 40 years, he just trusts that she knows what she's doing. So, mm -hmm. which is the fair right, assumption? Yeah, yeah, which is the right way to do it. Right. So, I mean, if you have someone you can trust like that. Mm -hmm. So, it, hmm. it's a weird question because, like, the answer is non standard. It's sort of the flaw in, in award shows, right? Like, the flaw in costume design, which we talked about is the costumers are doing something different on the set of Oppenheimer than they are on the set of horror things. But because there's only one award, we are forced to sort of consider them together. <laughs> like we're not for, or we could just not have an award show, but in that there's going to be an award show, they're comparing apples to oranges. Oh, so one of the, this is, this is a side comment. One of the, one of my big pet peeves with the Oscars is the way that we do supporting versus lead roles. You're allowed to have one lead actor and one lead actress per movie. That's just the rule. So in the movie Oppenheimer, for instance, they have chosen to nominate Killian Murphy, who plays Oppenheimer, as best lead actor, and Robert Downey Jr., who plays Strauss, as best supporting actor. And... It's kind of misleading because, frankly, in that movie, I think their parts are more or less equal. I think RDJ is just as much the lead as Killian Murphy is in the movie. Murphy has a lot more screen time, it seemed. <laughs> it's pretty close. Probably two to one, I'm guessing. I don't know. I mean, I, I've not edited. But the, pro but the point is, Downey is certainly doing a lead actor performance. Yes. It is, it is unfair to compare his part in... In Especially a three and a half hour movie. <laughs> to, to Gosling's part in Barbie or to Mark Ruffalo in Poor Things or De Niro in Killers of the Flower Moon or Sterling K. Brown. Sterling K. Brown in American fiction, he's great in it. He's in like five scenes. Like he's not 
I mean, he's not nearly as much on screen as Jeffrey Wright is in, in, in American fiction. And he's nowhere, and he, like, he's just, there's way more acting for Robert Downey Jr. to do, but you're only allowed to have one lead actor. Where Frankly, really neither matter, is De Niro, right? De Niro, like, right. if we're gonna, t De Niro's off, like, yes. making the movie where he plays both lead roles that comes out later this year. Like, he is also a sleep <laughs> Eastwood style. Yeah, but, 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 like, that's, and that's kind of, that's kind of my point. The one that really bothered me is famously the movie Brokeback Mountain. They're only allowed to have one lead actor, so they nominated Heath Ledger for lead, and they nominated yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal yeah, cool for for supporting actor. But had it been a heterosexual romance, mm -hmm. one would have been nominated for lead actor, and the other would have been nominated for lead actress mm -hmm. because it was a gay love story, and they were definitionally both male. One had to be supporting actor, mm -hmm. and they just kind of chose one. <laughs> and it's like there, there's no way that Jake, like, there's no world in which Jake's character is less important than Heath's character, but only one of them could be lead. And that's couldn't they have nominated both for lead? No, no, no? you only get one. So oh. you, you only get one that gets to be lead. Hmm. You can nominate as many people as you want for supporting, but like there can't be two lead actors. Hmm. And there can't be two. Same thing happens with Chicago, right? One of them has to be lead, even though there's two women who are starring. It's just the hmm. way it works, right? And that's a weird decision to make. And also, I, I mean, I don't know how to fix it because if you changed it and said, okay, we're not going to gender the awards anymore, we're just going to have best supporting actor and best lead actor. That sounds like a great idea until you realize what's going to happen is we're going to not nominate a lot of women. Right. Because right. there aren't as many opportunities for women. And therefore, you know, but then there is no best non-binary award. I mean, there is a way to fix it. You can do what the MTV Movie Awards did, which is they combine them. The, the MTV Movie Awards no longer have male and female categories. They just have actor. And that's just how they're going to do it now. And they've been the last couple of years. So you could do non-gendered, but the Oscars choose to have a gendered award category in order to be able to give out more awards. This also com comes up in, this is a controversy. Wait, well, but why don't they have the same problem of more men being nominated then? Because they try real hard to not make sure, to make sure it doesn't oh. because MTV as a company just does like, like it's not, there's no governing body. It's just MTV decides. So, okay. Okay. so they just do a thing like uh -huh. they made the decision and then they kind of decide okay. to try and be as equitable as possible but like you're just trusting in a corporation the good graces of a corporation now and that's kind of eh, you know so like it, it's not great right <laughs> so the oscars like it, it would be hard i understand that um and the reason that i understand it is because it's come up this year where a lot of people want Greta Gerwig to be nominated for best original screenplay rather than best adapted screenplay for Barbie because the argument is that Barbie's not really an adaptation so she she deserves the real award but that's the mentality of people who don't understand the way Oscars work because a bunch of regular people think that Oscars think that original is more prestigious than adapted but it's not adapted is just as prestigious and in fact you know, only three times in history has a movie won the big five, which is best actor, best actress, best picture, best director, and one of the two best screenplays. Because you can't, there's no way to possibly be nominated for both best original and best adapted screenplay. You're one or the other. All three movies that have won the big five, their screenplay was in the adapted category. So I don't think that 
saying that Barbie should be considered more prestigious than The Godfather. I'm, I'm going to take that stance. Frankly, I don't know how many people realize that The Godfather was a book. Like, not to throw too much shade at this episode, but like, yeah. When we are going to talk about like what counts as culturally elite or not, like there is some like insider knowledge there. Like you do kind of have to, you do kind of have to speak the lingo. Like that's the whole mm -hmm. point of the gatekeeping itself, right? Right. Well, the screenplay award. So, in particular, just for people who are wondering, the screenplay award rule is if it's based on previously existing material beyond real life individuals. So you can do a biopic. You can have an original biopic and that can be best original screenplay. But otherwise, if it's based on any other previously existing material, it goes in best, best adapted screenplay. So my example here is the movie Knives Out is an original screenplay. The movie Glass Onion is an adapted screenplay. Why? Because Benoit Blanc had already been in the movie Knives Out and therefore his mere presence makes it adapted material. It's literally that dumb. Barbie, however you feel about how good or bad the movie was, Barbie absolutely is based on extant material. There is a Barbie doll and they're like, and people are saying, well, it's an original character. No, it's not. There's a doll that needed, even if they gave it an entirely new personality, the concept is not original. There's extant IP that makes it an adapted screenplay. You can, all sequels are adapted. All remakes are adapted. Like Moonlight was adapted, even though it was based on a play that was never produced. Moonlight was written as a play. It never happened. They rewrote it as a screenplay and then it became adapted. It's that silly and weird. Now, is it silly and weird? Absolutely, but it's the Academy's way of having two. So sorry, was it the same people who wrote the yeah, screenplay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Literally, the guy who wrote Moonlight was like, oh, let me try it as a movie instead. And they're like, adapted screenplay. That's just, I mean, and I understand why some people think it's not fair, but those are the rules and they're well established. And what are you really complaining about? Like, it's not fair in what sense? It's still getting a lot of prestige. You know, like, I, I think that Greta Gerwig wrote a brilliant or Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach because because she, she co-wrote it. I think they wrote a brilliant screenplay, but it is an adaptation, as are the other things in the category are American fiction, Oppenheimer, poor things, and zone of interest. And you know, like like Monica said about Godfather, probably most people don't even know that they're all based on something. The book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean what books they're based on, you know. Huh. Yeah. So Mario Pusa. Oh, in, in the case of Godfather, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, frankly, when you, you read through that list of all the things that it's sitting there next to, there is a mm -hmm. whole like, why are people upset again? <laughs> yeah, right. But, like, <laughs> I think they. I think. Yeah, that's a really good contenders. Um, I think that the mentality is they think they think that she did more work because people think that adapting a screenplay from an extant novel is harder than i mean it's easier, it's easier yeah. than writing one from scratch and on behalf of anybody who's ever written anything professionally fuck you entirely um no writing is hard and it's just like it, it's not it doesn't work like that like i understand the, the mentality because somebody said well you don't you know somebody said and it's always with me it's always well you don't understand of course i understand i'm only talking about things that i understand but people will say stuff like well she did a lot more work 
because she had to come up with all these characters and original concepts. And it's like, that's just what writers do. Adapting is in some ways harder than, than, than doing it from scratch. Like adapting means that you have to you know pay attention to the material and build your research in. And it just, it is a lot harder than I think people think it is. And again, I, of the three things that have won or all five, you know, won the big five, it happened one night, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and silence of the lambs, all adapted screenplays. You know, Barbie's in good company. <laughs> if it wins, you know, it, it's fine. So we've resolved nothing? No. Thanks. Just one final question, sure. possibly. Yeah. So, okay. So when I went to Barbie, I saw it like twice, I think, mm -hmm. maybe three times. Um, so like Ryan Gosling's performance did strike me as like particularly good. And like, that was a really, it was very entertaining. Mm -hmm. But I guess I was wondering, like, how do we know what was him versus what was Greta Gerwig's direction? Like when he did that thing where he's standing, like he's trying to impress Barbie, like leaning against the wall or something. Mm -hmm. And then he's like subtly looking at his bicep and trying to like, you know, impress her with it. Like, that's kind of like brilliant. And I'm just like wondering, do we give like, who? Do, how did the voters know who to give credit to for we that kind don't. of thing? I mean, unless, okay. they, unless they say so, we don't. It, it is another, it depends because what it means to be a director and how you direct actors depends, right? Like mm -hmm. there's entire books about like methods of acting mm -hmm. and of directing. Like we have the Stanislavski method. People exist of tools mm -hmm. of method for acting and directing. And it, personally, I don't know what Greta Gerwig uses exactly, but there are some actors, some directors yeah. uh -huh. who will give, no direction to their actor until they see what the actor does organically. And that mm -hmm. first take might be the one that ended up like via the editor as the one that they use in the film. And mm -hmm. so you could maybe argue that one was entirely the actor, but it might not have been because at the same time, the actor and the director might have sat down and looked at the script and talked about the character for a few hours mm -hmm. beforehand. And so they the actor might not have come to that decision entirely organically because there was some influence over the discussion of who they want that character to be that they came to collaboratively. So it, mm -hmm. it is one where it's like, it's always going to be a bit of both. And obviously the act, the same way that when I talk to a director as a costumer and they tell me what they want, sometimes I'm going to get a director who comes in and they say, nope, we're using that dress, right? That dress ended up on the rack because I had a mood board. I gave the mood board to my shopper, found it at the store. So who really deserves credit for that? Like, who was really the costume designer in that situation? Was it the, the director who said that one? Was it my shopper who was at the store who said that one? Was it me who put it on the mood board who said, I really think that the red dress is going, a red dress would, like, mean the most in this scene? Who knows, right? Like, so that is also or like. Was the act, or was it the actress who saw the red dress and was like, you know what this needs? It needs my gold necklace that I have at home. Yes, exactly. And that, and, and that totally, it's all going to be collaborative. Every single Right, time. right, right. Because, so, I mean, so, so the categories you, are a bit arbitrary artificial? because yeah. the films are mm -hmm. so collaborative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, so I think it's Jesse Ventura 
who made the comment where he was talking about, I can't remember who he said he got the advice from, but he was talking about the best advice he ever got when he decided he wanted to become an actor rather than, I think he said it was from Nicholson or something. He talked to some famous actor and he was like, and he's like, I decided to become an actor from a wrestler. And he's like, and they told me, let wardrobe do the acting. And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, I'm always going to be Jesse Ventura. Like when I walk into a room, I think he, I think he did say he was talking to Nicholson. There are certain people, he has a definitive enough look that like you're always going to be aware that Jesse Ventura is in that character. And he said, similarly, Nicholson, Schwarzenegger, you cannot cast Arnold Schwarzenegger in a movie and have him not be Arnold Schwarzenegger. So it's the job of a costumer or a makeup artist or a special effects guy to turn Arnold Schwarzenegger, the human being, into the Terminator, to turn Jesse Ventura into Dutch. Jesse Ventura versus Dutch is a hat. It's a Panama hat, which ma- which makes him that character in Predator and not the guy from wrestling. And because his voice is the same, and there's a script, but Jesse didn't write that script. You know, there's direction, but Jesse didn't do that. Jesse is doing something, and if you've ever seen the first the, the movie Predator, Jesse Ventura is very good in it. And parts of it are decisions that he's making. But what is a decision from Ventura versus what's a a decision from the director? If the movie's good, we shouldn't be able to tell. There should be, you know, it takes a thousand people to make a movie, right? Like, uh, I mean, well, no, it takes one person to make a movie. But like for a big movie, there are a thousand people there, right? Like, you can have any number of people on a movie. And the reason there are so many people in the credits is, you know, like an entire performance is very much changed. If like the guy holding the light changes the direction of the light a little bit, but we don't give him an award, Mm -hmm. but it matters and it affects the overall product. And it's a decision that he's making at that time that, that literally can, affect the overall product in some way that hopefully no one ever notices but it comes together and at the end of the day you have a bargain is it lighting no no no, <laughs> no. It was for some reason no production design is oh okay which i guess sort of includes lighting also directing sort of includes lighting also camera camera <laughs> really like, when you think about the person who actually goes to like the head of the lighting department and tells them what it should be. It's camera. Yeah. So, so. But also then who yeah. told production design to put the lamps in and who told production design, which lamps would be turned on and not on camera director. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. But, uh, well, so and again, and together and it depends and, on, and it depends on which director, right? Because like, yeah. like I said, there are some directors who will walk the entire lighting stage and be like, Nah, I need more shadow. Like, even if they don't know the technical, like, what voltage this bulb needs to be, which the lighting guy knows, right? He'll just be like, it's too bright over here, needs more shadow. Like, that is a job that some directors w- might do. And some might not care at all. Like, so, it, film is by nature collaborative. I mean, people are always con- commenting that come stunt work doesn't get an Oscar. Kind of should. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, y- you sort of the illusion of film is you want to believe that like Chris Evans is doing all that fighting. He's not. not. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, you want to believe that, you know, so. Hmm. 
So it's denial. <laughs> kind of. But also, like, that's sort of, there. there's also, if you really care, there oh, are okay. works for stuff okay. people and they for light people, just not Oscar, right? right? Like, it, there are, in much the same way as there are People's Choice Awards, you know, like Monica said, you could watch the CDGAs. They are available, just no one does, you know, unless you're a costume nerd. Mm-hmm. So. so, yeah. I do think it all matters, and I think that in talking about it, I, I think that conversation makes it an interesting thing that goes into the production of film. And I think that there is value in the fact that no matter what wins the Oscar this year, you know, probably Oppenheimer, we'll see, but, uh, you know, whatever wins Best Picture, the fact that there's going to be an argument of why isn't it Barbie says something about our society and where we have moved the needle of caring about the place of women in blockbusters. One of the complaints that I got into was somebody said, well, Barbie deserves to be nominated just because, you know, for the last 15 years, we've been dominated by boy movies and they meant superhero movies and meant Marvel movies. But, you know, but like, so you're just mad that a girl movie's up there. And I'm like, well, I'm not mad. I love Barbie, but also None of those Marvel movies won Oscars. Not best Picture. Like, heaven forbid, they won a lot of People's Choice Awards. And again, People's Choice Awards, Barbie's going to clean up. Clean up. Oh. <laughs> I wonder if people learned anything from today's episode. I this hope that they learned how to fill up their Oscar ballot a little better now that they know it's a rigged game. Yeah, well, we're we're gonna give in probably a week or two. We'll probably give our our nominee. It'll be a couple weeks. Uh, I want to get the Guild Awards in. I want to. We'll, so we'll probably do it the week before the Oscars. The Oscars aren't till March tenth, so we'll probably do it the week before. We'll give our we'll give our picks, and you can always go against this. But it gives you a little bit of something to to look forward to and try and figure it out. And and Steph, do you at least know what a director does now? No. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Until like I have to. I don't know. I still wouldn't be able to sort of like pick which film had the better direction, probably because mm-hmm. they're all so good. And that's the other thing. Like when you're arguing, when people are arguing, well, the thing that I like should have been nominated. Well, of course, because you like it. So you know, it's the thing we said at the beginning. We're all going to have different opinions, and so you're allowed to. You don't have to agree with what the Academy says is the best. I think there are technical things that go into it, but also. At the end of the day, let's be honest, most of the people who are complaining that Barbie didn't get nominated have not seen the other movies. Like, uh, and they can, you know, some some people have seen them all, but honestly, most of them haven't. I know because I can, you know, because I can see the box office results and I play this game every year. So, so like, they just, you know, you don't see all the movies, you know, so, so it's really hard to you know, to just say, oh, well, you're judging based on some ethereal thing that is a mix of technical achievement and cultural relevance to a very specific elitist group based on the three movies that you watched this year. Maybe in like 20 years or so, a movie like Barbie will win Best Picture. No. Well, a movie like Barbie? Yeah. I mean, in 20 years... 
maybe a movie like Barbie will win Best Picture instead of whatever is relevant in the year 2044. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because it's because it will be old. It will be old and out of touch because it's 20 years out of date. But I don't even know that that's true. Like the Oscars are are just not about. They're not about blockbusters. Like if I look at things that you know, what won, like, are you saying what won the Oscar in the in the eighty six Academy Awards? Is uh, that's a good question. War movie, I'm guessing. No, the eighty six. Well, eighty six Academy Awards was uh, Twelve Years a Slave. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so that was that, like one hundred fifty. Two thousand thirteen. So we solved yeah. racism. We solved racism again in that year, <laughs> right? And but I mean. 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture. Best Director was won by Alfonso Cuaron for Gravity. Best Actor, that was the year McConaughey won for, for basically dieting, because that was Dallas Buyers Club. And so he won for his physical transformation. He won because he lost a lot of weight. Kate Blanchett won for Blue Jasmine, movie that nobody saw. So, you know, it's a thing that still happens, you know. Oh, wait, no, McConaughey didn't lose the weight in Dallas Buyers Club. That was Leto, who also won. He won for Best Supporting Actor. I think, see, it's been so long. I think Leto's oh, the one I that thought, lost all the weight. Isn't I it? thought he did. See, I can't. They both okay, do, the fact, he lost to be honest. They oh, both, what? They're both dying of AIDS. Of course they're both losing weight. Right, but, but which one was the one that got ridiculously skinny? That is Leto because Leto dies. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was McConaughey the one does got... also lose shrinks. Yeah, but some like... equivalent of a ten-year-old okay. human being worth of weight loss journey on that movie. Okay, so, but yeah, so but that's the point. So like they, that's what's being celebrated. You know, yeah, the sacrifice fifty pounds. Fifty pounds for according which one? to McConaughey. And how much did Leto lose for it? I'm curious about this. <laughs> this is a weird, weird way to end our show. <laughs> Thirty pounds. But really? Leto was smaller to begin with, oh, so might be a bigger percentage of it. Yeah, yeah, probably. That, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, Leto would have been a... Leto was a skinnier guy. Because he certainly, in my head, the picture looked skinnier. Yeah. Anyway. So, Stephanie, thank you for joining us. For okay. Pleasure. Thank you journey. for having me. <laughs> Anything you'd like to plug? No, I was just thinking, like, just vote. It's been. It's going to be, you know, a while, but... Oh, you mean the... Not, yeah. not in the Oscars, you're saying in the Oh, actual, no, the yeah, election. the actual, yeah, <laughs> the election. Yes, that is a fair thing to plug. Okay. <laughs> and Monica. I'm still trying to make people be my friend on Letterboxd. It hasn't worked yet. <laughs> We're going to keep trying since this is a, a show about movies. Maybe this was the one that attracted enough movie fans that they might want to be friends with me on Letterboxd. That's Monica oh, Marvelous. Wow. Yes, please friend Monica on Letterboxd. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Blue Sky, Threads, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show at uh, Vox Popcast on Facebook or Twitter or Blue Sky. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week. And you can leave us comments on this or any other show. You can suggest topics that you want to hear us talk about. And you can just give us your thoughts. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or Pandora or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor. 
leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out, especially if you don't just leave a rating, but if you write a review, write a little something on Apple Podcasts, that gooses you wrong with them, makes us more popular, and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought Farm Music for epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank Stephanie for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye! Bye!